This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Good morning, Jill Bennett, sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Thanks so much for being with us, and happy September 1st. Let's go right on over to check in with Gord McDonald. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. You're sounding chipper. It's Thursday, not Friday. I think we both were hoping when we got out of bed <laughs> early this morning it was Friday, but alas... We have to uh, get through Thursday before we get to Friday. Yeah, I really felt, uh, I mentioned this to you, I sent you an email earlier today, for whatever reason, when I woke up this morning, I really felt like it was Friday. And for anybody that, that does that, or perhaps is doing that right now, it's not a great feeling when you think, oh, great, Friday, here we go, if you have the weekends off, and then no, not quite there yet. Yeah, it's it's Thursday today. It's Thursday, <laughs> just to remind you, it's Thursday uh, you're going to need lots of coffee, and that's just the way it is. We can't, uh, Jill and Gord can't change that for you. <laughs> Try as we will. It is September as well. That might shock a few people also. Yeah. Uh, where did it go? Interesting. Uh, just have a clip from Mark Madriga we're going to hear at the top of the hour. Uh, August, uh, not surprisingly, uh, very dry, drier than normal. So we got a lot less rain than we normally do in August, which is our driest month to begin with, but a much drier uh, month. And it was much more humid in the month of August than I think what we're used to. That's according to the month end numbers that Mark compiled for the month of August. And uh, we've got another very hot day today, highs of uh, 25 near the water, 29 inland in Metro Vancouver, but it's gonna feel like 32 to 35 this afternoon with the Humidex. So uh, we've still got a couple more days of this hot and humid weather here on the south coast. Yes, uh, very, very warm, that's for sure. Uh, let's take a look at what else. So later today we are expecting an announcement from federal health officials. A lot of questions about Ontario, what they're doing as far as dropping the five-day COVID isolation rules, and should BC follow suit? We'll also get some uh, clarifications, it seems, on those booster shots. Okay, so what uh, the federal government is to announce uh, this morning is that they're going to approve uh, the bivalent uh, vaccine, at least one of them, for uh, COVID. Now, these are the new uh, and improved COVID vaccines that not only go after the main strain of COVID-19, but go after the subvariants of Omicron. And since uh, late last year, since late 2021, it's Omicron and the subvariants of Omicron that are uh, the COVID uh, strains that are making their way and making us sick and disrupting our lives. So uh, we're going to get some approval, we expect, by the feds on uh, Moderna's vaccine, bivalent vaccine, that will be a new and improved one. Uh, you mentioned Ontario, Jill. They announced yesterday a couple of changes. Kids aged 5 to 11 can get booster shots. So booster shots are needle number three or needle number four. Um, the first two shots that we got way back when uh, were the basic um, protection. Um, but also Ontario is saying that um, 
you don't need a five-day self-isolation if you catch COVID. So if you test positive for COVID, what Ontario says now, you can go back to work or school 24 hours after your symptoms have disappeared. Uh, you're supposed to wear a mask for 10 days after that, um, but that's voluntary, not mandatory. Used to be, and I think it is still for you and I, Jill, with uh, Mr. CKNW, that if we catch COVID, we've got to stay home for five days. But Ontario is telling its citizens, no, you basically just have to stay home uh, and you can come back to work or school 24 hours after your symptoms disappear. So Ontario is easing the rules a little bit. Yeah, and I think people are, well, I shouldn't speak on behalf of people, but I think at least people I've talked to uh, say are kind of ready for that and and ready to to ease those. Even when you look at some of the federal rules and provincial rules and the contradictions there, Gord, even when, you know, all of the controversy about traveling, when they eased some of the traveling rules, uh, but then there was that confusion with the federal government saying, but if you're chosen for random testing when you come back to Canada and you're positive, you still have to isolate for 10 days, even if your provincial rules are five days. Then we found out that federally regulated businesses such as BC Ferries, their rule was only five days, even though it's a federal, uh, federally mandated agency. So a lot of confusion and difference depending on what province and what industry you're looking at. So probably well, good to get some clarification. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll get some from British Columbia. But you raise an interesting point. We want easier we want the rules to ease. We want that. But the disruption from COVID is still quite marked. And uh, I'm sure our listener can attest to this when they go to work because people being off sick uh, from work and, you know, having to, if you're not one of the people sick, you got to do, you know, most places you got to do the same amount of work no matter what. Um, we've been hard hit in broadcast, for instance. Uh, this past summer has been probably the most disruptive uh, when it came to staff having to be off because they've either got COVID or are in contact with COVID than any other time in the pandemic. Our fear level is less. We want to do more. We are, of course, doing more in society and wearing masks less and things like that. Yet the disruption from COVID is still real. And not to be a negative Nelly, but we are heading into flu and cold season you know, November, October, November, December. And that's when COVID has generally you know, had another surge. So you're right. The rules are confusing. Uh, different jurisdictions have eased the rules, but I, I do have some, um, I, I do have some sympathy with government agencies, health agencies, and businesses as well that want to keep people working. How do they navigate uh, being safe, uh, but also allowing people to uh, uh, to do things? Uh, it's not an easy task, but uh, I think you're right. It would be nice if they, if the various uh, provinces got together and said, hey, you know, this is how we're going to do it. It used to be that the pandemic was very different in very different provinces, and that's how they justified the different rules. But it would be nice if there was more clarification. And the rules around travel um, sure seem to be uh, uh, outdated. You know, the Arrive Can app and things like that, just uh, the world seems to have moved. Absolutely. All right. So we are waiting for that announcement from the federal health officials, and we'll find out more about that. Dr. Brian Conway is joining us later on the program to talk more about that as well. Uh, hey, another story, Gord, you've been talking about, and I'm so glad this is in the news today, because just the other day I was looking across the water, and I was looking at Stanley Park, and I thought, wait a minute, those trees look really brown. Is that me? Is that different? And you have a story about the brown trees in Stanley Park today. 
Yeah, it's the looper moth infestation, which is actually in the fourth year of a three to four year cycle. So the looper moth, about every decade, uh, has a, an infestation that can last up to four years. So we're in the last year of it. It really hit the North Shore, North and West Vancouver, hard last year. Not nearly as hard this year, but certainly Stanley Park is getting walloped. Uh, by the looper moth and uh, it goes after the trees. Now I mentioned uh, a very dry August um, that has also contributed so almost drought-like conditions in August uh, we had to, we did have a very wet spring which was good but it's been a very very dry in August so that very dry conditions and the looper moth is killing more trees in Stanley Park and they're turning brown especially along the causeway especially as you head towards um, Lionsgate Bridge. Now the park board there's not a lot they can do and if the tree dies then it's normally it's not a, a risk uh, terribly fast to falling down on people on trails or falling down on the causeway down the road it becomes a risk when the wood rots and the whole tree becomes very unstable but initially the tree it's not a danger um, but it is a problem and uh, talking to uh, one of the environment people with Metro Vancouver Regional District they'll be urging municipalities to uh, to pay attention to this because the next infestation uh, would be due about 2032 so about 10 years from now this is the last year of the infestation so by the time we hit the colder weather in October and November it should be pretty much done but it's hitting Stanley Park quite hard uh, late this summer. All right, so that is the explanation if anybody else has noticed the brown trees. One other story, Gord, you strike me as somebody who might be a Lord of the Rings fan. Yes, uh, well I read the books twice uh, years ago in university and then uh, about uh, 20 years later as an adult so I was quite interested when the movies came out um, loved the books enjoyed the movies very much um, kind of old-school I think the books ultimately are generally better than the movies but this is the new the new thing coming out and I'm uh, I, I haven't been able to watch much of it yet but I certainly am looking forward to it yeah a lot of people have been waiting for this has been in the works for uh, a few years to uh, and fans have been uh, waiting for this and apparently people who got a bit of a sneak peek and who have been able to at least watch the first couple of episodes uh, what did i heard it described as a feast for the eyes yeah and of course with the new you know new hd it's not new it's been around for a number of years but uh, some of the filming now is even more stunning than it's been in the past with the improvements in and the big screens and the HD TV and and the various improvements there so yeah uh, looking forward to that uh, it's um, interesting that uh, how long can you go to the well to to keep working stuff but uh, we do love that and uh, we will watch time and time again and they uh, they're banking on that because what was the price tag i saw as well it was what 715 million dollars to put this together just, it, it hurts my head to think about the numbers involved in some of the productions. Uh, you, you, you know, and the other thing too with the with the new world, it used to be that movies came out, and it was the first few weeks of a movie that was going to be a great success, or it was a death sentence. But with streaming services, and the fact that streaming services bring back old stuff uh, and rejuvenate old stuff uh, means that uh, hopefully everybody makes makes a good living and we get to enjoy it. Absolutely. All right. On that note, thank you so much. And Gord, we will chat with you tomorrow, actual <laughs> Friday, and we'll find out what's happening then. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, our question of the day today has to do with ride sharing, things like Uber and Lyft. And we're asking you, since ride sharing was introduced in this province, how often do you find yourself using those services? And do you think it's essential that every community have it in BC? Asking this today because Uber is now seeking a BC-wide license, hoping to bring places like Victoria and Kelowna into the fold sooner rather than later. They'd like to see it before the winter holiday crunch. Well, let's bring on show contributor Raji Sohal to talk a little bit more about this. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. I was an early adopter of Uber. So I lived in LA for a year and it was very early days still for Uber. Uh, Maybe it was popular there, but we were very far from having it yet in Vancouver. So I'll tell you what I did love about it back then. It was very competitive pricing. And I found the customer service was always very friendly in terms of the driver because the driver was always getting rated. You have to rate the driver uh, in the app after the, the drive is done, after the ride is done. Vehicles were way more clean than the taxis I was more familiar with from Vancouver. And it could be really affordable, especially if you did the true ride share, which is where it would link you with other riders on the same route, which in L.A. happened very easily and frequently. So I had like very cheap rides everywhere I went. So it didn't make sense to even drive my car uh, or to get around in any other way. It was like, OK, Uber makes most sense. Moved back to B.C. There was no Uber system here. No, the app was not, uh, I think, even a thought yet for people here. And I remember calling for a cab once in East Van on a Saturday night and waiting an hour and a half. And I could have obviously not have just walked home in that amount of time, I could have walked home and back and <laughs> gone back home like several times. So it was clear, it was so clear back then that the taxi system needed to change. I really wanted to have Uber in Vancouver, but I was also so uh, ignorant about what Uber is like for the drivers and what taxis are like for the drivers who have the licenses to uh, run them. And I was so rider focused instead, just really fixated on what the app means for passengers. But when you think about us moving to Uber and what that does for the taxi industry and even for the Uber drivers, uh, it's really imbalanced. Like Uber drivers get poorly compensated. I interviewed actually an Uber driver for the weekend show. She told me that with current gas prices and then the huge cut that the app takes from the driver, that she was only breaking even. And we know that taxi drivers do better than than break even. And I don't know how much it is these days for a BC taxi driver to purchase a license. But like 10 years ago, it was $800,000. And there was a lot of work that had to go into and time resources into getting that license in the first place. And with the Uber app, it's just an app. It's an app that connects drivers to this massive uh, company. I certainly don't want to see it expand in BC. If anything, I want to see some regulation around it and some measures to rein it in because uh, drivers are not getting much money at the end of the day. It's uh, going to the app. Right. But but I mean, I guess, too, I mean, drivers know when they sign up, no one's forcing anyone to be an Uber driver and, and drivers, I would think, know what they're signing up for when they uh, agree to do that or when they try it out. Yeah. So when you talk to a taxi driver who has become an Uber driver, and there are many now, I understand, in our in our city, uh, 
they know, but they're doing it because that's all they do. They know how to drive and people are taking less taxis and going for Uber instead, going for Lyft and other ride shares. So that's where they're going, where there's business. But, you know, I talked to two taxi drivers on separate occasions here in Vancouver who told me they have gone from being able to make a living driving a taxi uh, to this is the only work they know how to do and they're doing it now for Uber and they're not making a living. They are just scraping by. And also there's the point about how taxi drivers are required by law to pick up anyone who calls. They're not allowed to discriminate, right, against someone who who looks like they might even be dangerous. And what I find with the app is the app links the uh, passenger to this app. So there's a bit of accountability there that the, the driver has a little bit of protection with Uber and in cabs, they don't. Uh, so what I, I think ultimately we could do is stop seeing this as a completely black and white issue because there were so many problems with taxis before. Um, and there's new problems with the Uber app. So I think we could strike some kind of a balance where we have more measures on taxi drivers so that there's better service there, but not wholesale take on Uber and let it dominate the province either. Uh, yeah. And, and like you said, there are so many taxi drivers who are also Uber drivers and uh, who do Uber and Lyft and kind of do all of it, which opens it up. I mean, there's more options in that sense if you're going to focus and if it's your full time gig, whereas we know a lot of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, it's something they do part time on the side. But uh, there are so many that are doing all of it. Uh, it, it does seem a bit strange that there are different rules depending on, on which which hat you're wearing as far as what driver you're being. Yeah, and there was so much pressure, right, from people, especially in Metro Vancouver, who said, no way, these cabs are too expensive and there needs to be more options. Uh, Fair enough. Like, there should be more competition. Uh, I couldn't stand either that the taxi system was like the only system here. But there have been so many problems with Uber and so many accounts online that you can read about of uh, driver exploitation, of them not getting uh, paid enough. And the app takes such a huge chunk of it. I mean, we could put pressure instead on the Uber company to take less of a share. I mean, what is it anyway? It's just an app. Like it's a, a piece of software that's connecting all of these people together. Yes. So, well, interesting then we'll see what happens with Uber, because uh, as we mentioned, uh, they're hoping for a BC wide license. uh, And that is our question of the day today. So we'll see uh, what else people are saying about this and whether they would like to see it uh, expand to other areas. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is Mornings with Simi contributor, Raji Sohal. That is our question of the day. Uber wants to expand throughout BC. That would mean service coming to places like Victoria and Kelowna. What are your thoughts on this? Since ride sharing was first introduced, how often do you find yourself using those services? Do you think it is an essential service for every community to have in this province? Let us know on the buzz line 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-BUZZ. You can also email me, jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that BC has set up a $60 million back-to-school affordability fund. This is something that can be used for schools to expand meal programs, help out families who might not otherwise be able to pay for some school supplies or field trips. And joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside. Minister, thanks so much for making some time for us this morning. 
Good morning. Happy to be here. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how the money will make it to the families? Uh, I know with the, the $60 million, we have 60 school districts, the minimum yeah. amount, $250,000. When do you anticipate it will actually be at the districts and in the hands of families? Well, um, you know, it's, it's actually already rolling out there. The way that we distribute a fund like uh, such as this uh, is that we, we base it on the way we distribute the operating grant. Uh, to districts, but you know, as you noted, in with this fund, uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, all districts had enough to do uh, something substantive with. So we established a floor of uh, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So all districts will get a minimum of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That allows some of those smaller and more uh, more rural and remote districts to uh, uh, to have a good uh, a, a good amount. And really, this recognizes the extraordinary circumstances that families are facing right now, given the global inflation impacts. I had seen, though, the uh, the president of the B.C. Confederation of Advisory Councils uh, was saying that families will be encouraged to reach out to the councils and to school principals to get a share of the funding. So will families specifically have to reach out and say, hey, we're having trouble with this, we need some of this money? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's not usually what families have to do, although we certainly do encourage families if they are, uh, if, if they, if they are having challenges to reach out and talk to their local uh, vice principal or principal at their school. That's generally how families sort of access some of the programs that already exist. But we know that um, school districts uh, are already um, providing meal programs, uh, food programs, programs where they are providing um, uh, school supplies to kids who, uh, who, who are in families that, that may, be, may be struggling. And that, that actually all, that already happened last weekend. Uh, the Abbotsford School District uh, was one of the districts that we had done some consultation with about how to set up this fund. So they knew that, um, uh, that, this, uh, that this money was coming. And they were able to, as part of the work they do every year, to provide uh, school supplies to, to families in need. They were able to add um, additional uh, families to the work that they were doing last weekend to provide uh, school supplies and clear their back their wait list of 300 families because they knew that this money was, was coming. And in fact, at the announcement in Burnaby, uh, school staff were there, parents and families were there, and kids left that announcement with backpacks full of school supplies getting ready for, for next week. All right. Uh, the One of part of the, the funding announcement that is getting a lot of attention as well is that in addition to the $60 million, the $3.8 million, so almost $4 million that's being provided to independent schools or, or private schools. So is that a scenario where parents who, who are choosing to go to schools where they're paying extra and paying for their kids to go should be qualifying for money that's helping people make ends meet? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the important point to focus on here is that we have families and kids who are in um, some pretty difficult circumstances, and that's really, the, that, that's really what, we're, uh, what we're trying to help with here with, the, with this fund. We have, uh, we have a, a structure uh, with regard to education in this province that um, provides for uh, funding of independent schools. That is longstanding. There's a formula written in legislation around, around how funding flows, and, and that, that's what we're abiding by. We're just we're, we're simply abiding by the um, what the what, what what the legislative structure and the and, and the structure um, in in education re- requires us to do. But I would note that you know aside from the sort of the the, the larger issue of independent schools, there's certainly independent schools are uh, play you know they, they provide a range of different um, kinds of programming and. Kids who are in those schools come from a range of different circumstances and may well come from families who are experiencing food insecurity and who are also struggling right now. Uh, Even though these are schools where people are making the choice to pay tuition and to pay more? 
Yeah, I think that you you, you find it, it, in independent schools there are a range. Families come from a range of different circumstances, just as they do in the public school system. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the return to school. Uh, in addition to this funding, uh, certainly there are a lot of questions as to what it's going to look like with air filtration, with COVID protocols mm-hmm. and such. Uh, do you think it would be helpful if BC adopted kind of what we're seeing in Ontario in that they've gotten rid of the five-day isolation period, uh, asking people, obviously, if you have symptoms and if you're sick, not to come into the school system. But would that be helpful as far as staffing and making sure that that schools are well staffed and people can still come to the site? Well, you know, I, I'll just, just to say at the outset that, of course, as, as we have done since the beginning of the pandemic, we follow the, the, the advice and direction of, of public health. And so the current guidelines that kids are going back to uh, next uh, next week are, this, are the, those, the guidelines based on what uh, the, uh, the BCCDC has advised. And they're very similar to what was in place at the end of the previous school year. Uh, you know, I, we think it's still very important for, uh, for staff and students to make sure they're doing a daily health assessment and not coming to work if... Uh, um, if, if they're sick, uh, that's really important for everybody. Uh, and also very much encouraging families to look at vaccination options to, to try to get our, our vaccination rates, particularly for the 5 to 11-year-olds up. And I know boosters uh, boosters have just been made, made available for that group as well. You know, I, I'd say that we are still going to be very, uh, be, be working with districts to pay very close attention to uh, to what's happening with, um, uh, with, uh, with, with the pandemic, supporting districts. Districts will continue to work with their local school medical health officers to really watch uh, w- watch what's happening. Uh, do you anticipate or is there conver- are there conversations taking place though as far as uh, a lot of people are referring to this kind of as the most normal we've been going back into the school year in a few years now. Um, are there plans though as far as what happens in the fall with COVID rates and that that there could even be conversations about going back to remote learning or, or changing things having that kind of disruption? Well, I, I don't have any indication. I've not been advised by public health that they see any of those that need for those kind of extraordinary measures on the horizon. Uh, again, we have to we have to understand the pandemic is still with us, and we need to take our you know take measures to uh, uh, you know to make sure we stay home when we're sick and all, all of those things I, I talked about, and that they that we hear from our, our public health officials um, uh, with response to, with regard to how, how to how to deal with the particular phase of the pandemic that we're that we're in. But you know, we worked so hard and frontline staff everyone in our system worked so hard to keep kids connected to in-person learning that was such a, a fundamental uh, of such fundamental importance and um, a huge a huge task over the past couple of years and we uh, that that's what we want to make sure we continue to do is keep uh, keep kids in, in schools in structured environments where they have all of the sports that they that they need and uh, Minister, one other question, and uh, I guess on a positive note, we're seeing what looks to be uh, some positive ground with the BCGEU and negotiations with the province, but we also know that teachers are in that position where they too have talked uh, about the possibility of job action should things not go well at the negotiating table. What do you tell parents at this point who are concerned that we might see job action disrupt the school year? Well, I, you know, it, it looks looks to me like the the uh, the, the parties uh, in, in education will be back at the table to, um, talking in uh, late bit later in September. That's that's always good when, uh, when when the parties are talking. We'll see how things unfold. But uh, I mean, I, I think I think certainly for the uh, for the you know for the return to school, things are think things are looking good. And I, uh, I you know we'll 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 wait to see what uh, what comes out of the process later in September. All right, Minister Whiteside, thanks so much again for making time for us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too.
That is Jennifer Whiteside, BC's Education Minister. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, BC's Auditor General is raising some doubts about the accuracy of the province's public accounts. You'll recall the budget surplus has been pegged at about $1.3 billion. That was announced this week. However, BC's Auditor General says there were three departures from what are generally accepted accounting principles, and that surplus should actually be a lot bigger. Michael Pickup joins us now to talk more about this. He is BC's Auditor General. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, happy to join you. Uh, and uh, this was uh, referencing this should not be taken lightly that you have come out and said, look, there are, there are some errors here or there is a lack of transparency here as well. Can you tell us where are the three areas where you found issues in the public accounts? Uh, sure. So to, to summarize really quickly, the first one is on revenue. Um, and that there's six point, roughly $6.5 billion um, that hasn't been recorded um, that should be. It's sitting in a, as a liability, but that should be in revenue, which would increase the surplus. Um, there's incomplete contractual obligation disclosures, and we indicated in our opinion that we believe the uh, contractual obligation disclosure should be roughly $3.5 billion uh, higher. And, and that's so people really understand the contractual obligations that have been committed by government to make certain expenditures um, into the future. And then the final one is on the BC First Nations Gaming Revenue Sharing Agreement, which we believe um, the government's financial statement should show the $91 million in revenue coming out, and then the expense uh, side of that as well. And on that last one, you wrote as well, saying, in my opinion, the government's method of accounting lacks transparency and it doesn't accurately, accurately reflect the, the way that agreement is structured. How big of a concern is that? Yeah, you know, it, it is concerning because you want un- financial statements to be understandable. You want them to be very open and, and transparent and really follow the uh, accounting standards that have been set by the standard setters. So when people look at the financial statements of government, they should see the money coming from the lottery corporation over to government and then flowing out as well. Um, connected to that First Nations gaming as well, uh, we believe that there should be a contractual obligation disclosed uh, as well, because that will extend for the next 23 years, commencing in 2022. And when you look at the difference then with the government announcing that the surplus is $1.3 billion, uh, you are saying that if you look at these uh, mistakes or if you look at uh, these three areas, the surplus should have been $6.48 billion higher. That's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, and, and in in you know in the interest of, of fairness in terms of this revenue and the surplus that should be higher, that issue on the not recording the revenue the way it should be uh, has existed now for a number of years. So now we're at a point where this is number just keeps getting bigger, and now it's it would take a six point five billion dollar adjustment um, to correct this. I should add as well that you know as part of the auditing standards that we follow. I would have had a discussion with government, uh, including the minister, on all of these issues, and had and would have asked for that these be corrected as well. Um, and none of these things have been corrected. Right. So at this point, when when you point this out and you say that it hasn't been corrected, is it an issue of this is? It, it doesn't seem like this is just oversight or somebody made a mistake. It seems almost more like it's kind of creative accounting. 
Well, it's a decision, right? So, so part of my job as that independent auditor is to come in and, and, you know, judge whether, in my view, the accounting principles have been followed as set by the standard setter and then um, determine that. And I said, you know, I don't believe that you are, and I believe I believe the government should change how they um, account for these things, and they chose not to, not to do that. Um, and that is why, you know, we were talking about this today. Um, so, yes, I think it is important that these things um, be adjusted and corrected, but that didn't happen. Uh, similar to what you would see really in the private sector, right? So if you had a, if you had a national airline or a bank and, and their auditors uh, qualified the financial statements, shareholders would be concerned. Uh, in this case, we've brought it to the people of BC because we think they should be concerned. Right, the taxpayers here uh, being being the shareholders. Uh, right, absolutely. Uh, so, so what what do you think should happen then, or, or how concerned should we be that this this hasn't been corrected? Well, you know, I hope there will be. I mean, we do this work. I hope there will be discussion by perhaps by elected officials, um, and we'll have discussion with the government about these. Um, errors and things that need to be corrected. And I hope that, you know, in next year's financial statements, the government will look at this and make these corrections. What are the benefits, and this might be beyond your realm, but what would the benefits be for the government to continue doing this to not make the corrections? Yeah, I mean, that that question probably, you know, is better posed uh, to the government. I can take the flip side of that and say, you know, the reason why the corrections uh, should be made is you want financial statements that meet uh, accounting standards. So these accounting standards are not made up by us. They're, they're set by the independent um, standards that are in Canada. So you want financial statements that are comparable across the country, uh, you know, that are understandable, that are reliable. And part of doing that is is preparing financial statements that are audited and get a clean audit opinion. So we wouldn't call this a clean audit opinion, um, but that should be the desire to have a clean audit opinion. All right. Michael Pickup, thank you so much again for your time and for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Oh, happy to join you. Thank you for your interest. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there is some breaking news, as you've been hearing when it comes to COVID and the approval of Moderna's Omicron COVID booster. We're going to talk about that as well as what's happening in Ontario and the guidelines, what's changing and what could potentially change here in BC. We're joined now by Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jill. I want to start with, we'll talk about the easing of guidelines and such, but I did want to start by getting your response to what has just happened this morning, Health Canada approving that specific Omicron COVID booster by Moderna. This is excellent news. This is a vaccine that we should be giving next in the series of vaccines, and I'm very pleased to hear that it will be available to Canadians in the short term. How do you get people to get on board with the same numbers, though, that we saw even in the first and second shots? Because it does look, when you look at the the percentages of vaccinations of the boosters, things did taper off significantly. And they continue to do so. And as we introduce vaccines in the youngest children, the uptake has been uh, very disappointing. I think uh, people were tired of COVID. They needed the summer off. This is a good time for us to get back into this messaging of getting COVID shots. And uh, given the uh, epic severity of the influenza season we're seeing in Australia, getting the flu shot also and trying to get these messages together that vaccination is important. 
And what would you say to somebody then? Because there are going to be a lot of people in the scenario that maybe have two or three shots and have had COVID and are pretty sure that they had the Omicron variant of COVID who just aren't feeling it for this fourth shot. Well, I think we need to understand that natural infection is not a protection. We've known that in the long term. You need to be vaccinated. And I think the messaging needs to be that influenza pandemic occurred 100 years ago and we're still getting yearly flu shots. The COVID pandemic is is waning and changing into an endemic. And we're probably going to be getting yearly COVID shots. So let's have that discussion and make sure that we all feel it so that we can continue to live the lives we've enjoyed over the summer. Uh, Do you think that needs to be for everybody, though, or should we be focusing more on the higher risk, people in long-term care, people who are more vulnerable? Well, again, in the yearly influenza vaccination program, we focus on those over 65, those in long-term care facilities, and we even give them a boosted vaccine compared to the vaccine that's available to everyone else. But everyone else should get a flu shot. And I think that's the same messaging for COVID. We should make sure that those at highest risk of being hospitalized and dying from COVID get their shots. But it really is a society-wide effort. We need to embrace it. All right. I wanted to ask you as well about something that we're seeing. So Ontario has come out saying that there is no longer a need to isolate for five days if you test positive for COVID, as long as your symptoms improve. So they're dropping that five-day isolation period. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think they're adapting the uh, recommendations to the current realities. It's clear that if you're getting better, it may not be necessary to wait the five days. But also in those regulations, it says that if you have been infected with COVID, you should wear a mask in public for 10 days. You should avoid vulnerable people as much as possible for 10 days. And if you live in a household of someone who is diagnosed with COVID, you should probably also wear a mask in public for 10 days. And I think that uh, this is uh, consistent with uh, uh, what I think uh, we're going to all embrace going forward. So they're loosening it one in one part, but they're just making it uh, making it clear that precautions need to be taken if you have COVID. And so do you think if, Paul, if people followed that guideline then and did mask up but after testing positive, is it OK then that we drop the isolation period? Absolutely. I think that the isolation period can be dropped as long as you are getting better. So if you are still sick, the, the isolation period is still applicable. The, the guidelines in Ontario are clear, is you can go out as long as you're getting better. Can you still be infectious, though? Because, I mean, there are cases where people have had COVID and, and had no idea and only maybe found it through a mandatory testing type protocol or that kind of thing. This is why we have many layers of protection out there. We want people vaccinated so that if they encounter such a person, it's less likely that they'll get infected. We want mask wearing when it is appropriate, and we want people who feel unwell to stay home. It's those layers of protection with vaccination being first and foremost uh, in terms of what we need to do that are going to allow us to, to, to get through this and deal with the situation you described a bit better. And do you think we need better clarification when we talk about being unwell or that as long as your symptoms are improving, then you can go out, you don't need to isolate. But the the symptoms, not only are, is there a long list, they tend to be different from person to person, whether, whether it's some people have a fever, some don't, some people get a cough, some don't. How do you kind of define you're feeling better, even when something like being tired is one of the symptoms? 
Well, Jill, you've just pointed out the two key ones. I think that if your cough is persisting, that counts as still being unwell. If you still have a fever, that counts as being unwell. And in the Ontario guidelines, they've added gastrointestinal symptoms, principally diarrhea, as something to, to watch for. So if that was a symptom of your infection and it still is there, then you need to stay home. Of course, this is not perfect, but this is why we have layers of protection and we're trying to develop a framework for COVID world that we're all going to be able to live through. And again, it begins with vaccination. Uh, right. So, and at what point, though? I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, and and how important it is. And but we can look at the numbers, and again, see people really did uh, come together and got vaccinated in great numbers for those first and second shots. But it has been tapering off for the third shots. There's also going to be a portion of the population that doesn't get a flu shot, isn't going to start doing that, and probably isn't going to get a fourth COVID shot. Absolutely, and I think we need to develop messaging to help us all understand that COVID is not going away. It isn't an end state where we're going to be able to forget about it. It will spread in the community in so much as there are people susceptible to infection. So you have enjoyed the summer. You have really uh, earned that summer to continue to enjoy this approach to life. You really need to get vaccinated and we need to hammer that message home in a, in a positive way, in a way that we're all in this together. And I think that's the, hopefully we'll do this in the fall. Uh, do you think this will work as well, then, if we look at school settings? Again, if we were to adopt something like Ontario's dropping of the five-day isolation, that would mean people could return to a school setting, whether it's staff or students, but still following the guideline to mask up. Do you think that could work in a school setting? Absolutely. And schools have always been among the safest environments at every stage of the pandemic. We know who goes in. We know who goes out. We can very easily exclude people who are sick. We can have mask use be tailored to the environment. We've improved the ventilation of schools. Uh, children are much safer in schools than in the general, uh, in general community. The pandemic has taught us that. And uh, I think this would be a great place to teach all of our students about COVID and what the future is like and incorporate that into curricula uh, and have people talk about uh, uh, their, their hopes, their fears, and we'll use the school environment to, to build this in a positive way. Do you think that will lead to higher vaccination rates than within the, the, the younger children population, whether it's the, the lower grades or those areas where we're just not seeing the same amount of buy-in? From the beginning, I've said that we should have used the schools to help educate about vaccines. And in fact, if you uh, bring the, the parents along, uh, they will get educated uh, also. It'll be educating families, educating groups of families. And I think that uh, this is an important tool that's been underused. All right, Dr. Conway, we'll leave it there for today. As always, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. 8 to 18 on this Thursday morning. Well, this weekend is your last chance to score some back-to-school shopping deals. It will likely be a very busy one at the Hot Spots. For more on this, our show contributor, Raji Sohal, is back with us. Hello again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, word to the wise is that if you don't have kids and you were thinking about shopping this weekend, eh, maybe avoid the mall because it's going to be insanely busy. It is, as you say, one of the biggest shopping weekends of the whole year. 
I plan on going to get some deals for my kids, um, but their requests are pretty easy because they're really into Star Wars. So they just want anything with Star Wars on it. So that means uh, Star Wars leggings, backpacks, shirts, that kind of thing. And at MacArthur Glen in Richmond, their marketing manager that I talked to, Allie Day, she told me they're expecting 23 thousand shoppers just tomorrow alone and then on the subsequent days too so very very busy and all the malls have been preparing their stock for weeks for this sale and some people might be thinking oh you know can't you just buy your your school clothes like throughout the year and yes you can uh but the thing is you'll be paying uh full price because this weekend the stores have been preparing to slash their prices really for back to school sales it's going to be a busy weekend. Um, lots of excitement, lots of sales. And I think, you know, people are, are really going to be lucky if they decide to come a bit earlier in the day. You know, we find it's a little bit quieter, sort of from 10 a.m. to around lunchtime. So it's a great time to come and, and visit the center and hit all the shops and, and sales up. Um, and alternatively, if you're um, looking for something a little bit later in the day, we tend to get a little bit quieter in the evening. So from 6 p.m. onwards, you have a good three hours of, of having the center almost to yourself, which is great. A lot of parents are dreading how much the back-to-school shopping costs in total. So how do you ensure you've got the, the best deal for your children's back-to-school needs? I uh, I know that very well. Um, we're a family of six kids and a dog, so so we, we really feel back-to-school shopping. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's certain things um, that you can invest in that are going to last um, a little bit longer, you know, backpacks and, um, you know, depending on what age your kids are at. But I think, you know, planning for um, knowing what your budget is, uh, looking online at what the latest offers are, um, and really planning your trip and and sort of knowing, you know, what your kids really need, um, what they may um, be able to carry over from, from last year and what they need to go into the new season. Hmm, good points made there. So Raji, I'm I'm curious, do people actually all make the trek to the malls and you have to do it in person? You can't just shop online? I do see a lot of people in my community still going in person um, because sometimes those sales don't appear online. And so one of my tips is to actually, if you're, if you do physically go to a store while you're there, you've got the item in hand that you want, check that SKU on the website for that company, for that retailer and price match. If you can, I've done that several times uh, at one place that I go to frequently um, and I end up saving like sometimes $100 if I'm buying several items. So it, it pays to price match and check online. And if you're just buying online, you don't physically go into the store, you don't always uh, see that opportunity. But these outlets, for example, um, there's, you know, if you go to an outlet or a warehouse type of sale, uh, there are a lot of back to school warehouse sales happening this weekend. I know Ritzia is having a massive one for teens, uh, more not for kids, uh, for little kids. But those, those sales are you can expect a huge deal this weekend there because they're already on sale. They're already on discount. And then they're going to be slashed even further for the back to school sale. So lots of deals there. And, you know, people don't really treat back to school shopping, Labor Day weekend shopping like Boxing Day. But I think if you do and you show up for the opening of the doors, then you can avoid all the annoying crowds. I hate shopping in malls when it's extremely busy. So like that was a good 
tip for, for me. And then another one I think is that if you have little kids, uh, do as much planning as you can before you go into the store so that you're not doing impulse buying. So if your kid is like, Oh, I want to, I want a frozen backpack, but I also want a Moana backpack and a star Wars backpack. You got to nail it down before you head into the stores as to which one they want. And if you're lucky enough to have childcare in your vicinity, someone who will, uh, watch your kids so that they don't have to come shopping. I think that's an important one too. Uh, Yeah, which makes sense because I was also thinking too, and you mentioned teenagers where this wouldn't be as big of an issue, but I would imagine every year parents, you don't want to shell out a ton of money for clothes that kids are going to outgrow in a short amount of time. Yeah. And for teens, I think it's really important to have a chat with them before you go out shopping and say, hey, what do you really, really, really want? Like, what are the things that you think you're going to get a lot of wear out of? So that same thing, they don't go shopping with you and go, oh, I want this and that. They've given it some of their own thought and uh, they have some control over it too. But then also, Jill, there's a lot of folks who are feeling uh, inflation right now. And so they're not going to go to back to school shopping, but there's other options for them. Uh, You know, get hand-me-downs from your community. Join the swaps online. I'm on plenty of uh, online swaps where I give away my kids clothes once they have outgrown it other people do the same and then where I think people should think about spending a little bit more and and making your buck work for you for as long as it can is things like water bottles like get yourself a good quality water bottle Uh, kids should get backpacks that last they shouldn't get ones that uh, are poor quality and then you know they're lasting for a couple of years And for little kids, I suggest uh, outerwear, which is so expensive, uh, but you do need good quality outerwear in Vancouver where it's always raining, um, that you go for the stuff that's a little bit bigger in size. Uh, Go up a size so that it lasts a couple of seasons. Yeah, and uh, you you made a good point too And thinking about the winter and it's hard to think about it with the sunshine out there today, but the rain and the cold, making sure those the boots and shoes are all set to go as well. Yeah, this is a good time for uh, banking on the sales of some of the quality outdoor company wear too. I noticed that several of them are having, like your mountain equipment co-ops are having special sales as well for back to school. And then that would be a great time to get in on outerwear deals for the winter. All right. Good advice, Raji. Thank you. Thanks, Jill.